Welcome back as we are continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, in our last session, we began chapter 19. We looked at verses 1 through 10. We heard heaven rejoicing because the kingdoms of this world uh, have fallen and the kingdoms of this world are about to become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. We also heard in those verses in chapter 19 uh, that the announcement was made that the marriage supper of the Lamb was about to occur. And the bride, the people of the Lamb, the people of Jesus Christ are going to be invited to this marriage supper. We were betrothed to Christ when Christ came after us in the incarnation. We're in that period where our bridegroom is preparing a place for us. But there will come a time at the end of the age when the bridegroom will return for his bride. And that's the age in which we're living right now and we're making ourselves ready for the coming of the bride. And we have received the gift of the clothing, the fine linen that's bright and pure that is symbolic of the righteousness that's given to us in Jesus Christ. And when these announcements were made in chapter 19, the first 10 verses, John the Revelator was so impacted by them, uh, he fell at the feet of the angel trying to worship the angel, but the angel admonished him to uh, get to his feet and worship God and God only which again is one of the major themes of the book of Revelation. We're to worship God and God only. We need to be aware of idolatry, all the idols that our hearts can create. And we need to worship God, focus on God. Let God and God alone be the center of our lives and the Lord of our lives. So that's what we saw in the first 10 verses of chapter 19. In this session, we're going to start at verse 11. And in verse 11 through the end of chapter 19, uh, we see the return of Christ. We see the return of Christ and we see another great supper that will contrast the wedding feast of the Lamb. We'll see another great supper, which is going to be the image of the final battle of Armageddon when Jesus, upon his return, uh, finishes vanquishing all evil, all sin from his creation. So we're going to look at the return of Christ and the final destruction of uh, evil and sin in this world and all the forces that have arrayed themselves against the work of Jesus Christ. So if you'll join with me, Revelation chapter 19, I'll begin reading at verse 11. John is speaking still. John the Revelator says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Uh, you may remember, I'll read in the, verse of Reve in, the, in the book of Revelation, you have seen a door opened in heaven in chapter 4. And then later you saw, uh, you saw the throne room of heaven. Here you see all of heaven open. You see all of heaven open and you see the white horse. Uh, we've, we've encountered a white horse earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. That, that white horse was the pale horse of death that comes about because of the warfare of this age. But this white horse is different. As we continue to read, you'll see that this is obviously the white horse upon which Jesus is writing. This is the symbol, the image of the return of Christ. So the text begins, Then I saw heaven open, all of heaven opened at this point, and behold a white horse. 
the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Obviously, it's Jesus. Jesus does not lie. Jesus cannot not lie. Jesus is faithful and true. The promises of Jesus are faithful and true, that upon which we can depend. Unlike the empty promises of this world, this age, the powers and principalities of this age, unlike the lies that the enemy brings to us to try to get us to believe lies as opposed to the truth of God, this one seated on the white horse is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So we hear those two words make makes war and it probably startles us a little because that's not the image that uh, we tend to have of Jesus. Uh, we tend to think of Jesus the good shepherd. We tend to think of Jesus the lamb. But we're being presented here with an image of Christ the warrior. Christ the returning, conquering king. And um, we'll, we'll learn something about how Jesus conquers uh, that may be rather uh, startling to us. But just at this point it says he comes to make war. And we need to understand that um, the wrath of God against sin, against evil, is reality. Uh, to, to hold a balanced Christian theology, we need to see and celebrate the love of God, but we also need to, to acknowledge the hard side to God's love. Uh, when you love somebody, uh, you, you will do wonderful things for that person, but there might also be a time when you get angry particularly if someone's hurting that person that you love. So the image of God is both, uh, completely loving, but a God that also uh, hates sin and evil. That's the God we see in the Old Testament, and it's the God we see in the New Testament. It's not an image that's just relegated to the Old Testament. God is God throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God of great love, but a God of judgment also. Um, God is a holy God, and God's love is a holy love. I want to read you a couple quotations uh, from um, a really good Bible teacher, Bible commentator, Robert H. Mounts. Uh, he, he has passed away now, but he was a great scholar of the New Testament. He has a wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation. Um, and I don't usually read many quotations to you, but I really like the way Dr. Mounts uh, says this in his commentary uh, of, of the book of Revelation as he, re, as he um, uh, re, refers to chapter 19. Hear this and receive this. He writes, The two nouns translated wrath and anger are found 13 times in chapters, chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. And we've seen all of that. Back to the quotation. Any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the book of Revelation. And he also goes on to say this. It is not true, however, that with the coming of the gospel age, the God of the Old Testament decided to, to prove to us that, that he really was a gentleman after all, and so dispensed with any further recourse to judgment. The good news is that we need not bear the just judgment due our sin, but that another, capital A, another, 
has paid the price for our behalf, on our behalf. Only when we refuse forgiveness must we bear the penalty for our wickedness. So the book of Revelation helps, helps to balance the picture of God and Jesus Christ that present in the Bible, a God of great, great love and grace, but also a God uh, of judgment. That's part and parcel of the great love and great grace. So here we see Jesus, uh, heavens open. He's preparing to return. He's the one sitting, sitting on the horse. He's called faithful and true, and he judges. He makes war, and it says here in verse 11, in righteousness. He is right in the way he judges. He is right in the way he makes war. But I want you to particularly notice how he makes war. I want you to particularly notice how he conquers. Um, in apocalyptic literature, what we see here is uh, almost unique uh, in, in, in all of apocalyptic writing. Notice how the rider on the horse, how Jesus conquers evil and sin when he returns. Verse 12, it goes on to continue describing this Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We saw that same uh, description back in chapter 1 of Revelation. It reminds us that he is all-seeing, his piercing vision. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Perhaps you remember that the dragon had seven diadems, Satan, and the beast had ten diadems, but here Jesus has many diadems, far more than Satan or the dragon or the beast, the henchman of Satan, has. So here Jesus has many diadems, and it goes on. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. You've already been told he's called faithful, he's called true. We know a lot of names for Jesus. Uh, you're going to be given some more names for Jesus in this text. But I've always been impressed that right here at this point in verse uh, 12 of chapter 19, it says he also has a name written that no one knows but himself. There will always be a mystery to Jesus Christ above which our human minds can seek to fathom. There will always be a mysterious side to Christ. We know a lot about Christ. We know all we need to know about Christ has been revealed to us in Scripture, but we'll never know all there is to know about Christ or God, the ways of God. So he has a name written that no one but himself knows. Verse 13 goes on describing Jesus seated on the white horse making his return. It says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Um, I want you to notice something here. As soon as you see him appearing on the white horse, he is in a robe that's dipped in blood. Where does this blood come from? What does this blood symbolize? Um, commentators will offer you a couple different suggestions. Sometimes they will say this blood has to do with uh, the, the conquering of Jesus over his enemies. It could be the blood of his enemies. But I want you to notice here that you see him, you see him clothed in a robe dipped in blood as soon as you see him make an appearance. Before any battle happens, before evil is vanquished, you see him arrayed in blood. 
I think that the blood here is his own blood. I think it's the blood that he shed for us. I think it's a powerful image of his life that he gave for the life of the world. That's what it means when you say Jesus gave his blood. He gave his life for the life of the world. So I think it's his blood. Um, I think you see that as soon as you see him here before any battle takes place. You see his blood. You're reminded of his great love. You're reminded of his sacrifice. And that's really the only blood that you see here is his blood um, that, that, is on, that, is, that is in his robe. His robe's been dipped in this blood. So verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in, I think, his blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So here's another name, another title for Jesus, the Word of God. Um, this is a significant title for Jesus. Uh, your mind perhaps goes back to the prologue of John's Gospel, uh, where in chapter 1 of that great Gospel it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. I know oftentimes people refer to the Bible as the Word of God. The Bible is, in a sense, the written Word of God. It's a continuing revelation uh, of God, but the Word, capital W, is Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, words were not just noises that we make with our lips, but words are something that create reality. And the Word of God is something that creates reality. The Word of God is something that speaks the mind of God, reveals the mind of God, and creates reality. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the will of God. He is the mind of God. He creates the reality of God. And that's why one of his titles is the Word of God. We're told here in verse 13. Verse 14 and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So, who are these armies of heaven? Uh, they could be angelic armies. Uh, I think perhaps that's included here. Uh, returning with Christ to finish the work of Christ here in this world. To bring the kingdom of Christ to this earth in its fullness. But I probably think this what, what is envisioned here in these armies of heaven are the people of Christ, the people who have been with Christ in heaven to this point, there in the intermediate state in heaven, the people whose lives have been hid in Christ and have been resting, uh, refreshing in heaven until the end of history, because the Bible in several different places tells us that when Christ returns, he returns with his saints. And you also see here in verse 14 that the, this, this army is arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, which you've already seen referenced in verse 8 as being the way the bride of Christ, the people of Christ, is dressed. Uh, so notice these armies of heaven. These are the saints in heaven who are coming with Christ to rule and reign on this earth. That's basic apocalyptic thought. And you notice they're arrayed in fine linen. These armies are arrayed in fine linen. They're not arrayed. They're not dressed in armor or clothing of warfare. But they're clothed, like you're already told in verse 8, they're clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, white and pure. 
Linen was very expensive in the ancient world. Uh, it was only worn by perhaps royalty. Sometimes in the priestly uh, quarter would, would wear the white, white linen. But it's not something you wore to battle. You wore the white linen for great festivals. It was clothing of festivity. So here you see the armies of heaven coming with Christ to establish the kingdom of God on earth, but they're not arrayed like a typical army. There's no armor here. They're arrayed in fine linen like they're going to a party because they are going to eventually the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding of the Lamb. So these armies are arrayed not like the armies of this world. That should tell us that the way the conqueror does his conquering is not the way the conquerors of this world do their conquering. Because look at his armies here. Verse 15. From his mouth, we're back at Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to do three things, to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So here's the only weapon mentioned. Here's the only weapon that's mentioned to Jesus, for Jesus, and it comes from his mouth. It's a sharp sword that comes from his mouth. And we know from the rest of the New Testament what this sharp sword is that comes from the mouth of Jesus. It's the Word of God. The book of Hebrews tells us the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So the Word of God is the only thing that the returning Christ uses here to vanquish his enemies. And with his Word, not with the armaments of this world, But with his word, he strikes down the nations. That comes from Isaiah uh, chapter 11. He will rule them. Actually, it says he will shepherd them with his rod of iron. That comes from Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That comes from Isaiah 63, uh, where it shows a warrior there uh, treading the winepress, crushing the grapes. So the evil, the sin of this world will be crushed like someone treading the wine press, uh, crushing the grapes in order to make the wine. So uh, Jesus does this at his return. You're getting ready to see a picture of the the final battle, the so-called Battle of Armageddon. Uh, You see Jesus here doing that, striking down the nations, uh, ruling, shepherding the world with his rod of iron, and treading the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on the sin and evil of this world. Uh, That's how he conquers. That's how he conquers. That's a very different way of conquering uh, than the world conquers. The only weapon he has is the word of his mouth. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And that could be two different uh, places where his name is written on his robe and on his thigh, or it could be one and the same. On his robe, which is on his thigh, he has a name written. So it's as if uh, Jesus returning on the white horse here to establish his kingdom in its fullness. Uh, he has like a banner draped across him, so you'd see it hanging down his thigh, uh, hanging down his thigh over his leg as he's, as he's on this mounted white horse. And on this banner is a name that's written. So here you're given another name for Jesus, and it is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, we know that. 
Part of what it means to be Christian is we know that right now in this age, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And right now in this age, in this life, uh, we seek to um, bend our knee, bow our hearts to this Jesus and offer him total loyalty, total allegiance as our king, as our ruler. Uh, the world, though, doesn't quite see that yet. Only those who belong to Christ in the world see, sees that. But there'll come a time here at the return of Christ when all the world will know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. So this is obviously a picture of Jesus. In chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, this is the return of Christ. Um, that we see happening in a, in a climactic way here at the end of the book of Revelation. So as Christ is returning to vanquish the evil of this world, the powers and principalities and evil of this world, beginning at verse 17 in chapter 19, you will see uh, the battle. You will see what's called Armageddon. That word is only used in chapter 16, verse 16 of the book of Revelation. It gets a lot of use in popular press. The battle of Armageddon, the battle of Har Megiddo, the battle that will take place in the valley of Megiddo, um, which was a place that the ancients knew well as a site of battle. This is a symbolic battle here. It's the battle of Christ vanquishing all of the enemies of Christ, all the enemies of the will and the way of God. Uh, so here you see this final vanquishing of evil uh, in verses 17 through the remainder of chapter 19. Look at the way it's being presented here. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun... And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, saying, Come, gather for the great supper of God. The ancients loved to write and to present things by means of contrast. You've already read about here in chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, to which the people of Jesus are invited uh, to consummate our union with Jesus. Well, here's another supper in verse 17. It's referred to as the great supper of God. This is very, very different from the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the destruction of the enemies of God. This is a destruction of evil and sin in the world. So look how it's described. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So uh, it's, it's harsh on our modern ears. But this, and keep in mind, this is symbol, powerful symbol. Uh, don't lose sight of the reality behind the symbols that all who have arrayed themselves, all the plans and purposes that have been arrayed against the will and way of God is going to be destroyed, going to be eaten up, going to be done away with. Again, the only, the only weapon Jesus uses is his word, but his word's going to destroy all who have set themselves against the ways of God. Look at verse 19 as the description continues. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth 
with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. Just like we saw back in chapter 16 of Revelation when you had, a, had the first reference to Armageddon, they were gathered for war, but you don't see any warfare being depict, depicted. Here again, they are, these armies are gathered to make war against Jesus who was sitting on the horse and against those who were returning with Christ. They were trying to prevent him. They're gathered to, to make war against him. But you don't really see any war happen. You don't see a battle happen uh, because Jesus just can speak by the word of his mouth and the enemies of God will be vanquished. That's why you see them gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Then the next verse just simply says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So there's no real battle. There's really just the capture of the beast and the false prophet. This should take our minds back to chapter 13, where we first encountered the beast and the false prophet. Uh, the beast uh, was the um, political power uh, that is arrayed against God, that wars against God. The false prophet was the beast from the sea, who was religious power, that was arrayed against uh, the ways of God. Uh, in John's day, that would have been probably Rome, probably certainly Rome, and the uh, emperor cult, the people who were forcing worship of the emperor. That was secular political power and religious power coming against the people of God. Um, that's the way John the Revelator experienced uh, this beastly power and this false prophet. Uh, throughout the history of the Christian community, uh, beast-type people, monstrous-type people, uh, keep coming, have kept coming against the, the church. Uh, they come against the church here with political, secular power, and there's always been false religion that keeps coming against the church. Uh, here, you can use the word antichrist. Uh, the book of Revelation doesn't use the word antichrist. The word comes from the book of, uh, the image comes from the book of Daniel. The word antichrist comes from John's epistles, and basically the antichrist is anyone who has set themselves anti-against Christ. So here the Antichrist, the final consummate Antichrist, there have been many throughout history who have set themselves against Christ. We've had our Hitlers, we've had our Stalins, we've had our Diocletians, we've had many, many people, secular and religious, who have set, them, set themselves against the ways of Christ. Uh, I noticed on one of the History Channels recently, they've been running an article about the Messianic um, understanding of Hitler. Hitler saw himself as a Messiah figure. So the, these beasts, these secular powers, and false prophets, these religious powers, uh, throughout the history of the church has continued to come against us. There will be one final one, one final great anti Christ, one final great false prophet. And what you see happening here at the end of history, when Christ returns, Christ will take that beast, that monster, and take that false prophet. Um, the false prophet had used miracles and signs to deceive those into following the beast, um, the Antichrist. And it says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
Um, there's your brimstone. There's your fire and brimstone that you've heard about probably all your life. Uh, this lake of fire that burns with sulfur, brimstone. Um, John, in the book of Revelation, doesn't use the word Gehenna. Uh, but Jesus, in the Gospels, used the word Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, that was a valley outside the city of Jerusalem to the south and to the west of Jerusalem. It was a valley where garbage was burned. It was a valley where pagan worship uh, from time to time would occur. It was even a place where during some of that pagan worship, children were sacrificed to pagan gods. So that's why that valley of Hinnom, Gehinnom, or Gehenna, became an image uh, for what we call in the New Testament, we're getting ready to see it more in chapter 20, what we call hell. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about hell and Hades more in chapter 20. But here you see these two thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's Gehenna, that's hell. And this lake of fire burns with sulfur. Well, your mind should go back to Genesis 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire and the brimstone. Brimstone's a sulfurous type uh, rock. Uh, That's the destruction that came to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the same kind of destruction. Here you see uh, this this fire that burns with sulfur is an ongoing, continuous, eternal fire uh, that is uh, uh, very malodorous. Uh, the smell is horrible, as you know, with sulfur. The smell is horrible. So this is the image of hell that we receive in the book of Revelation. It builds on what Jesus says about hell in the Gospels. It builds on the typical Jewish concept of hell, the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna. And this is where the beast and the false prophet are, 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 are cast. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And we're going to see that continue that emphasis continue in chapter 20 so Jesus returns he vanquishes the enemy he just does war with his sword which is the word of his mouth Uh, the armies gather to destroy the returning Christ Uh, they gather but you don't really see any warfare Uh, you just see the capture of the false prophets and the beast and then if you continue on with verse 21 you see how the rest of the enemies of God are dealt with in verse 21 and the rest were slain but the text tells you slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus who was sitting on the horse and all the birds the vultures were gorged with their flesh so you do see a rather stark image here of uh, the people who were supporting the beast and the false prophet also being slain, but they're slain with the word of Jesus. They're slain with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And uh, it says that they were slain and the vultures gorged on their flesh. Again, this is this is symbol, powerful symbol. Don't lose the reality behind the symbol. Uh, don't diminish the... Uh, the significance of the symbol or the impact of the symbol, but make sure you see the reality behind the symbol. We'll talk more about the concept of hell when we get on into chapter 20, but here you are introduced to the concept of hell, uh, which is the final resting place, the final abode of those who have fought against the way of Jesus Christ. Uh, The first two residents of hell here are the beast and the false prophet, and then those who are slain also who are supporting the beast and the false prophet, they will find themselves in that same valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, uh, hell, the place that burns with sulfur for all eternity. It's a stark, stark image. 
But we, we in the Christian community, we've, we've, we've said this many times throughout most of our worship services. If we're in a creedal church where we use something like the Apostles' Creed, where we say he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is part of the judgment that will come uh, when he returns. We will see more of this judgment in chapter 20 as we continue on in chapter 20. Um, But here we see the return of Christ, and we see the enemies of Christ vanquished in the last great battle. And I use that word battle in quotation marks. Uh, The battle that's sometimes called the battle of Armageddon, the battle that uh, finally vanquishes all evil and all sin. Because there will come a point when all... Uh, evil, all sin will be vanquished. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and His Christ. The work that Christ began on Calvary will be consummated one of these days. And the kingdom of God will come. We pray for that. Uh, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come on earth. Thy will be done right here on earth as is done in heaven. That's what we pray for. Here we're seeing the answer to that prayer uh, in its fullest sense. We see glimpses of the kingdom coming now as we see the will of God being done now in human history. But there will come a point in human history when only the will of God will be done in human history. And that's what we're watching as the rider on the white horse comes and vanquishes sin and evil here in chapter 19. I know these are, these are harsh words for our polite, modern American Christian sensitivities, but this is part of uh, the reality, the truth of the gospel. I'm thinking about uh, the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. Methodists don't sing it much anymore, and I think I know the reason, but the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote entitled, Lo, He Comes with clouds descending is a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote about the return of Christ. Uh, we need to start singing that hymn again, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Methodist people, and perhaps all Christians, need to read uh, John Wesley's sermon on the great assize, assize, the end of history, the great judgment. But in this hymn that Charles wrote, just, just hear these words. And I'll acknowledge these words uh, are a little startling to modern sensitivities. Uh, we've, we've gotten out of balance in our view of God. We just want to talk about the God of love, and we don't want to realize there's a judgment side to that love. But in the hymn, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, this is what Charles Wesley wrote for us to sing. Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. goes on. Every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. Those who sat at naught and sold him pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Yea, amen, let all adore thee high, high on thy eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. Hallelujah, 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 everlasting God, come down. The kingdom of God will come to earth fully one day in the return of Christ. We believe he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
Uh, we're seeing the beginning of that in chapter 19. We will see it continue uh, in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And we will get into chapter 20 of the book of Revelation in our, in our next session. Thanks for joining us. God bless you.